Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. We're doing something a little different on today's show. Our colleagues in Brussels, Jim Brunston and Alex Barker, they recently sat down with Thomas Wieser, one of the key figures in Eurozone policymaking over the last decade. And they got together to mark the fact that Mr. Wieser is about to step down as president of the Eurogroup Working Group. We're going to get right to it today. I'll leave the rest of the introductions to Jim. Here it is. Hello, I'm Jim Brunsden, EU correspondent for the Financial Times in Brussels. With me is Alex Barker, the FT's Brussels Bureau Chief. And we have the great pleasure to welcome to our podcast studio, Thomas Visa. Put simply, no one has been more in the thick of the euro area's efforts to overcome the sovereign debt crisis than Mr Visa. His role, which he's held for more than six years, puts him at the centre of all the work that goes on to prepare meetings of euro area finance ministers in Brussels. It was a job that during the crisis meant navigating painful all-night negotiations on everything from bailing out Greece to creating European-level supervision of Euro-area banks. His colleagues describe his approach to the role as being the calm voice of reason while everyone else is shouting, while he himself has said the task is similar to that of a marriage counsellor. Thomas, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, I think a a good place to start is to um, explain to the listeners a bit more about you and a a bit more about the role. Can you tell us a bit about your career leading up to the presidency of the Euro Working Group and uh, also give us a sense of what that job entails? Oh, goodness. It's a bit difficult to describe my career because I've always been a foreigner somewhere. Uh, It's a bit like Sting, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) An alien in New York and I've always been abroad in a way seeing that my uh, background is Austrian and English and American and a couple of others as well. My career has alternated between international organization, national administration, banking, and uh, also a bit of academia until I realized that uh, academia was better off without me. And over the years, as I moved upward in the Austrian Ministry of Finance, the international part of my work became more and more time-consuming, chairing an OECD committee, chairing the Economic and Financial Committee uh, and the Eurogroup Working Group of the European Union from 2009 until 2011, at which time after two years in that job, next to my Vienna job, I didn't seek a renewal of my mandate telling ministers that they had to look for another idiot Uh, who was capable and willing to do both jobs at once. And lo and behold, they found a volunteer, a very courageous volunteer. But at the end of the year, it became apparent that uh, this had to be a full-time job as Europe and the Euro area uh, specifically were in deep trouble. And that's how I came to set up shop at the beginning of 2012, full-time job here in Brussels, And I've been here for six years. 
people ask me to describe my job. What is it that you actually do? It's something my mother used to ask me for decades. And I said, well, I go to meetings and I talk on the phone. And she said, and people get paid for that? And I said, yes, well, sort of, that was Austria. And I've at times uh, likened it to being a marriage counselor, which indeed I think uh, we've been quite successful at preventing divorces over the past years. And sometimes I try and describe my job as a garage mechanic. My job is to make sure that the tires are pumped up, there's gas in the tank, the wheels are greased, etc., etc., so that when the politicians, the ministers get into the car and Jeroen Dijsselbloem or whoever was the chair uh, is in the driving seat, uh, the car can leave safely and hopefully find the next uh, destination. A third way of describing it, maybe the difference between myself and my successor, is I was uh, the guy who was driving the fire engine, and the guy who comes after me is much more constructive. He'll be the architect of deepening economic and monetary union and banking union and all that stuff. And of course, your fire engine was spending a, a lot of time towards the south of this continent on Greece. And I thought we'd maybe start with your reflections on something that really has been with you throughout your time at the Euro Working Group. And to think back to the start of this, can you remember the moments when the first reveal uh, came in terms of Greece's situation, how difficult it was going to become, and how prepared or not so the, the Euro area was to, to deal with it? I recently had a discussion with George Papa Constantino, who was the Greek finance minister, when the uh, first fiscal problems emerged right after the elections, nearly 10 years ago. And he was the guy who entered the room and said, good afternoon, I'm the new Greek finance minister, and we've been having a look at uh, the deficit figures, and it emerges that they are not five point something, but they are much higher, much, much higher. And in the end, they turned out for that year to be 15.6% of GDP, which, of course, is spectacular. And some basic arithmetic uh, shows you that within four and a half years, you would be doubling debt-to-GDP ratios, which is a sort of shortcut answer to those who said, well, austerity should not have been part of the solution for Greece. If you keep on pumping that much money into the Greek economy. One asks oneself, why were they only growing at 4% if you're pumping in nearly 16% of additional uh, resources? But, of course, at that stage, we were not well prepared for anything of that sort. In the beginning, we thought this is a fiscal crisis, and over the years, it's developed into a sovereign debt crisis, into a banking crisis, a financial crisis, a euro area crisis. So we've had quite a lot of different crises over the past 10 years and sometimes forget uh, that it all started in a way with U.S. monetary policy and transatlantic financial interlinkages. But be that as it may, the euro area was also institutionally not prepared for any kind of problem of this sort as the euro had been built on the erroneous assumption 
that there could be no harmful current account imbalances between member states. And if there are no such dangers, you also don't need any instruments to overcome these problems. So no recognition, no instrument, no process, no procedure, no institutions. So we went on and on, more or less inventing things uh, on the go. Initially, because of the no bailout provisions of the EU treaty, we couldn't even use or even invent any EU instruments. We had to cobble together the so-called Greek loan facility, which was a hodgepodge of 15 different bilateral loans which were administered by the Commission. And it was only later that we then started founding new institutions, uh, which now have a huge firing power of several hundred billions of euro, that we set up a single supervisor for the banking system of the euro area and quite a number of other uh, stabilization instruments and stabilization policies. But of course, we've gone through quite a number of metamorphoses and probably the most interesting part of the Greek saga was in mid-2015, but even before we had a couple of years of uh, educational experiences. Was there a moment where you really thought that Grexit might happen? As your colleagues say about you, you stay very calm under fire and sort of keep the ship on a steady course. Was, was there a moment where a few beads of sweat emerged and you thought maybe this is all actually uh, quite literally going to go south? We had two episodes. The one was in 2012 and the other one was in 2015. In 2012, I never actually believed that uh, Greece would really be leaving the euro. But in 2015, I thought, well, can't exclude it. The difference between the two episodes was that in 2012, the contagion effects would have been very significant, uh, whereas in 2015, it would have remained an isolated incident of a country leaving the euro area. But it would not have been good. The euro should and is irreversible. If we'd have approached Grexit in 2012, then there would have been a a bigger contagion effect, a a bigger fallout than if it would have happened in in 2015. How difficult were the discussions at that stage? Because that really, obviously, as you said, the first bailout had been based around bilateral loans in 2010. This was using euro area bailout instruments. It involved uh, a big private sector haircut on on holdings of, of Greek sovereign debt. Uh, how difficult were those were those discussions? And is it possible to sort to talk us through a couple of the key moments actually inside the room, inside the Eurogroup meeting of finance ministers? Probably in 2012, the most difficult uh, discussions were those around the so-called private sector initiative, uh, which is a acronymical euphemism for the haircut uh, for private investors, and which was one of the, I think, the largest ever sovereign uh, bond uh, restructuring and bail-in in modern history. And what people love to forget is that it resulted in a huge debt to GDP cut uh, for the Greeks. And ultimately it also resulted in uh, the euro area holding most of Greek debt. So getting that right, getting the discussion between the private sector and the public sector, between the IMF, the ECB, the Greeks, the Commission, finding an equilibrium solution was uh, extremely difficult. There had been a first attempt in late 2011, uh, which was aborted when politicians 
reflected on the provisional result and came to the conclusion uh, that the haircut was simply too small. And so we had another go at it. And those were extremely hairy uh, discussions. And they were more difficult with the IMF, uh, which was insisting on deeper and deeper and deeper haircuts. On the other side, the private sector, uh, which was pushing back as much as they could uh, with the voice that you may have or may not have Mm. uh, in these situations. And member states uh, who also had to chip in uh, money of their own, not only persuading the private sector. So that was something which kept us uh, occupied, not only for the many, many endless hours uh, in the meeting rooms, but for days, weeks and months in uh, preparing it and then uh, dealing with dealing with the fallout. But through all of that, there was always uh, the difference of opinion between those who said the euro area as such is uh, firm and nobody can leave, no matter what, as opposed to others who said the stability of uh, the euro and the euro area depends on rules, not mm-hmm. only on institutions such as the ECB. And if people again and again and again do not respect the rules, then don't change the rules, change the composition of the euro. And that was the big discussion mm-hmm. of 2012. None of the institutions uh, was advocating uh, this course, let alone uh, the then chair of the Eurogroup, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, But there were a couple of uh, ministers uh, who uh, were firmly convinced that for Europe and the euro as a whole, it would be better if there were a parting of ways. Who were they in particular? uh, uh, Yes, exactly. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, very very interesting debates. They were not dogmatic. They were really of a very high economic and uh, intellectual caliber. And finally, in the end, all of these ministers appeared to be genuinely convinced that it would be better if Greece were to remain a member of the euro area. So uh, that was more a behind-the-scene discussion and intellectual exercise, and we will never know if there would have ever been any practical consequences if Mm. the intellectual discussion had gone differently. That was a very, very interesting uh, episode, uh, which it, it, in 20 years' time we'll be able to write about in more detail. Was your personal view that the economic consequences were containable had there been a, an exit? My view at the time were that I would not feel confident in predicting that they would have been containable. I would not ever say they are uncontainable, but I would say there is a very high probability that they would not be containable. So it's no matter what you think of the morality or the politics, in simply in terms of risk management, it's not a clever thing to do. So does that mean then, in some ways, was Greece closer to leaving in 2012 than it was in, in 2015? Because in 2015, there was a moment where the, the Germans and, and I think others kind of hiding a little bit behind the Germans were, were on board with a plan for at least a temporary Grexit. But it came and went quite quickly, that moment, whereas it sounds like in 2012 there was more of a, a prolonged discussion about it. Well, I actually think that in 2015 they were considerably closer because in 2012 the Greeks wanted to stay and 
Uh, but in 2015, the Greeks, uh, or at least the Greek government, or at least significant parts of the Greek government, were giving a very professional and convincing image of wanting to leave the euro. So uh, there were quite a couple of uh, ministers who said, well, if that's what they want, let's uh, help them along, if that's what they really want. And not that I ever really understood the formulation of the question in the referendum. The Greek referendum, it's a bit like, uh, does the Thames flow uphill or downhill, yes and no, something like that. And it's not quite correct that uh, it was a very narrow slot in time when this was uh, relevant, because they'd been building up the discussions and, or the non-discussions or the dogmatic monologues or whatever you want to call it. All of that had been building up since January or February. And so it, July, beginning of July was the culmination and was not uh, the only point in time when they gave that impression. You, you must have seen a dramatic change in the kind of tenor of that discussion between ministers. The atmosphere can't have been the the same towards the end of this crisis than it was at the beginning and and, you know have they emerged as a more open functioning coherent body uh, than they entered a crisis like Greece you know the the kind of cordiality and things obviously uh, didn't survive a lot of the crisis but do do you think that actually mattered in the effectiveness? Well cordiality can be an indicator of absence of problems or negation of problems so if uh, utter cordiality had remained with the Eurogroup throughout the crisis, you might have accused ministers or the group as such of totally missing it. But what really struck me is that uh, the arguments never got bitter. And very, very seldom, with one or two very notable exceptions, people were not dogmatic, but gave fairly good reasons why they were uh, for or against a certain course of action. And all of those you could understand against the political background of their specific country, against the background of history of the country and the politics of the country. And it is only natural that somebody coming from Finland or the Netherlands would have a different reasoning than the minister from Spain or, or Italy or Malta for that. So... It never got personal, never, ever, with one or two notable exceptions. Riga. I think you have Yanis Riga in um, 2015. Well, whatever. Uh, I'm just saying that the vast majority of, of uh, relationships uh, were good, and people who'd had a heated discussion across the table went off and had a beer afterwards. You have mentioned before that there were missteps made. I mean, you, you can't go through a long crisis like this without making some missteps. W- what do you think they were in, in the case of the Eurogroup? And if there was a, a visa time machine, what, what would you go and uh, adjust and do differently? I think personally, I realised too late the degree of debt relief that one would have given Greece right at the outset with the proviso, had this not been in the midst of a global financial crisis. And if we had at that stage, and the same goes for Ireland, incidentally, if we had haircut uh, and bailed in a vast amount of the creditors at that stage, it is not only possible but probable that uh, we would have seen a 
cataclysmical event uh, for not only European but also global banking. But I must say, in in all uh, uh, self-criticism, we did the right thing, I think, at the time, but not because we were so clever, but simply because uh, we misjudged uh, somehow the situation. And I once asked uh, Jean-Claude Trichet, who'd been around for many, many years, I said, why did the Maastricht Treaty not foresee provisions on such things as banking union, a single supervisor, or instruments to deal with balance of payments adjustment uh, problems. And he looked at me and said, young man, there is a slight age difference, young man, it was all in the first draft, but the politicians took these things out. So people were clever enough, end of the 80s, and they saw what might be happening But many of these things, many of these instruments, many of these procedures, they are problematical because they take away national autonomy over quite central policy areas. And in the 80s, beginning of the 90s, it was unthinkable to politicians and central bankers to give up total autonomy over banking supervision. And we see exactly where that led to. Banking supervision was first and foremost an industrial policy instrument, uh, which is, if it is done in Albania or in North Korea, is fine. But in a highly integrated internal market, uh, there has to be a high degree of coordination and cooperation, of convergence of rules. Convergence is very important these days, always was. And... That is what they wouldn't give up. And that's also the big reason, to my mind, why the U.S. got out of the financial crisis so much faster than us, because they had one supervisor, one finance minister, and they called the banks together and said, you're being recapitalized with government money, as in the U.K. Whereas in the euro area, with very stringent competition policies, The individual banker did not want to be recapitalized intensively by the state because otherwise they would have had to change the business model. So we had these national responses which ended up with the whole financial sector on the continent uh, not having been recapitalized to such a degree uh, that they could get rid of uh, non-performing loans uh, and get on with lending. So that was the big difference between the US and Europe. That the US did top and and actually went in and sorted out the banks, whereas in Europe we didn't. Absolutely. And given the kind of um, imperfections, uh, to say the least, in the kind of structure you were working with, did you feel uncomfortable at times at having, you know, in a in a position that's not as democratically accountable as would be ideal, to have to stitch together responses that really, you know, it's the life of death of, of a country, of their politics... By stitching that together here, I mean, did, did that make you feel uncomfortable? Or seeing it in action where a central response had to be kind of brought together, even if, it, if it's not kind of in the architecture of the system? Democratic accountability. The Eurogroup is an institution, or if you want a gathering of 19 different ministers who represent their member states. And each of them is as individual and as a member of their government is responsible to their national parliament. 
So we had an embarrassad de richesse. We had such democratic accountability that at times uh, the problem was rather that we had to move so slowly until all of the parliaments had agreed. And some parliaments worked more rapidly and others less rapidly. Some were slightly superficial and some went into very, very granular detail on wanting to know different aspects of each and every of the programs uh, we were running. Democratic accountability was there to the maximum. Uh, The European Parliament has been saying that there's not enough democratic accountability, by which they probably mean uh, that there's not enough involvement of the European Parliament. But seeing as how national budgets are involved, I quite fail to see what the accountability could be except, and that uh, probably is something that uh, could be changed, except uh, for more regular uh, and systematic uh, hearings, Mm. such as uh, that of the ECB president. But budgetary sovereignty and budgetary responsibility is and remains uh, with each of the individual ministers. That, of course, is a problem. You have unanimity requirements there. And that is probably one of the reasons for criticism coming from the Commission and one or two uh, member states that say, if we continue to rely on unanimity in a next crisis, we will have to move faster than uh, we've been doing at times uh, in in the past crisis. So we would like to have different decision-making mechanisms, institutional setups and the like, but that will be extremely difficult. So what is the relationship between creditor countries countries and uh, debtor countries? Yeah, the the treatment of debtor countries. Right. Ultimately, formally speaking, it is the national parliament that endorses the memorandum of understanding and produces it. It is the paper that the government owns and votes on. But of course, it doesn't do so uh, by plucking it out 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 of thin air. And there is always... Uh, in the short run, uh, a trade-off between what the institutions, globally the IMF, and with us, ECB, Commission, now ESM as well, what they think as uh, being the necessary and sufficient economic policy responses to preventing such reversal of capital flows happening again. And you probably want to make sure that Not only the superficial problems and bottlenecks uh, disappear, but also the other structural impediments to growth, flexibility, uh, etc. Which always implies that such an adjustment program addresses more than just fiscal or more than just banking, but it goes into uh, the structure of policies and especially economic policies. The decision on Ireland... It was not uncontested. There were some people in some institutions who would have preferred a bail-in of creditors. But you need to remember back to the times uh, when these discussions were being held. The financial crisis was still on. And as was the case with the first Greek program, the environment was not so stable that you would have said, uh, I feel very comfortable with bailing in uh, the creditors. And therefore, this is what we will do. 
Of course, this has enormous distributional consequences because you shift the adjustment burden from the balance sheet of creditor banks to the balance sheet of the Irish sovereign. And so it's a trade-off between long-run financial sustainability in Ireland versus presumed global financial stability. And this was a discussion which was especially intense between, I must say, in full fairness, parts of the IMF and the ECB, and also the Commission, but predominantly between the IMF and the ECB. And in the end, as we know, the concerns about financial, global financial stability uh, won out. But even within the IMF, uh, I think you would find people who, would, who were advocating the one solution versus the other. So we'll never know if the alternative would have worked very well or if it would have ended up in uh, significant financial volatility. But in that case, how difficult was it to take the decision on Cyprus when that, at least for me, that was um, a, a landmark moment where the, the euro area said, well, actually, we are going to bail in senior bondholders at banks in this in this kind in these kinds of crisis situations where effectively the banks can't support themselves anymore. Initially, you know, I think part, partly to do with the way that the results of the discussions were were presented, maybe there was um, quite a lot of worry or quite a lot of anxiety in the markets about how that was going to play out. But then that then seemed to become the template for what we did afterwards. I would never use the word template there. So you're talking about events which uh, took place in early 2013. Uh, when the Irish program, I can't remember, was it already? Oh, I think it was over already uh, at the times. And uh, financial markets were back uh, to a much, much healthier uh, position. The Cyprus banking sector uh, had gotten into these uh, difficulties so spectacularly due to short-term speculation by speculating on Greek government bonds that uh, it seemed more logical at the time uh, to have a bail-in of creditors than it had been three years before. And uh, as uh, history shows, it was an eminently containable exercise. Cyprus is doing very well. Without the bail-in, we were talking about a program uh, in the range of probably without bail-in well beyond 100% of GDP very well beyond 100% of GDP. And a large part uh, of those program proposals were hope-based and not fact-based in the sense that they rested on very rapidly emerging flow of royalties from gas findings close to Cyprus. When I last looked, the ships were still hovering above water, but uh, without any access to the gas. We, we live in hope. But you, uh, you mentioned the, the banking union earlier. And I mean, did the Cyprus deal in a way pave, pave the way for the, for the banking union? And I was speaking with Jurin Dysoblim, the former Eurogroup president recently, and he said really that the, the banking union is the, is the unheralded hero, if you like, of the, of the sovereign debt crisis, that it, that it played a very big role in in re-establishing confidence in, in the banks. Uh, how, how far would you go, go along with that? Well, the sequencing was that uh, banking union started in mid-2012. And that was when in the June Euro Summit, if I remember correctly, the decision in principle was taken uh, to have a single supervisor. And already at the end of the summer, uh, the proposal was there. 
And we moved uh, towards uh, the single supervisor uh, and uh, important parts of the rule book that uh, supported that. So you may say that uh, the Cyprus decision was already a consequence of the emerging banking union. I see, it's the other way around. So I see. So even though it, it, it came before, it was the first big instance of using senior bondholder bail-in outside of a couple of cases in Denmark. The and, banking union was and, already in. And Spain. In uh, yeah. There had already been incidents in Spain. So it was nothing completely new, but uh, as such an integral part of a program, it was indeed new. And the banking union and, it, and its role, because a lot of the discussion in Brussels now is about how the banking union as a project is still incomplete. We have the, we have the European Central Bank supervising banks. We have a, a new system for dealing with bank crises. But there are other parts of it that are on the table, like a deposit guarantee scheme that, that are still pending. What, what has the banking union actually contributed so far, do you think, to, to financial stability? I would say it was the missing part of economic and monetary union. And if something really world-class came out of the crisis, it is banking union indeed. And I would say that 90%, 95% uh, of it are here and working. As you said, uh, deposit insurance is still not uh, unified. I'm very optimistic that, depending on the German uh, coalition agreement, of course, but uh, that we'll uh, be able to get there, uh, at least in principle, uh, by mid-year. But by and large, it is there. And the missing jewel in the crown, if you so want, uh, is the deposit insurance scheme, which will bring with it uh, a couple of other side conditions and side uh, instruments. But if that were to be the only legacy of the crisis, uh, we would have uh, emerged with with something very good. Uh, we've also emerged, of course, with uh, the European stability mechanism, with global rules uh, that make banks safer and more stable. And we've maybe above all, we've emerged from the crisis with a very, very strong and even stronger political commitment to the euro as a whole. And that is what people, especially across the Atlantic, did not appear to fully realize that it is an eminently political project. And it's not just some economic thingamajig which has been sort of glued together haphazardly, but it's a deeply political project. And uh, as such, it's here to stay and safe and stable. But we've gone through a quite, some say existential, some say very interesting, I'd I'd rather say extremely interesting uh, crisis. And having survived that volatility makes us that much stronger. The banking union in particular, you know, that's one of the most fundamental decisions I've seen taken by the EU in my time here, certainly. I've seen impact assessments on everything from olive oil jugs to tiny changes to regulation across the continent. Something like banking union uh, emerged, it, it was probably no more than half a side of paper, as I remember it, in, in the early hours of the morning. Explain to folks uh, who don't understand how this system works, well, why is it that these miracles happen 
uh, in the early hours and, um, uh, and and what is it about the dynamics of of these kind of meetings that that make that a kind of habit we were in the first semester of 2012 discussing one of uh, the several policy instruments that the European stability mechanism could use. And one of those that were under discussion was the so-called direct recapitalization instrument, i.e. that the ESM could directly recapitalize a bank in a member state without having to go through a formal balance of payment adjustment program. And there were some who very much advocated that. And there were some, more of the Calvinist or Protestant persuasion, who said there's no way that we let this happen because uh, there's uh, such a high degree of moral hazard involved. Uh, You might uh, possibly even let your uh, banks uh, go run into problems, give as much credit to the economy as possible, and uh, once they're in deep trouble, call in the troops and have them recapitalized at the expense of the European taxpayer. So this uh, was a discussion that went around in circles for months on end. And in the end, uh, at a G20 summit uh, in Los Cabos in Mexico, there was a discussion uh, which uh, President Obama initiated, calling together a couple of the European heads and saying, you must make progress with direct recapitalization of the ESM, which is a degree of uh, detail and granularity, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. which one doesn't yeah. always expect from all American presidents. I, c- I can see Trump ringing up and uh, wanting to go through some finer points of how bailout mechanisms in the euro area might work. Quite. In the end, this led to another meeting of four or five prime ministers in Rome shortly after the G20 summit who put together their finance ministers not much later and told them to have a look at this. And somebody pulled a white rabbit out of the hat and said, well, I would agree to the instrument if we had a single supervisor. So we looked at each other and said, well, okay, let's have a single supervisor. And within a week, if I remember correctly. That was a week or so before the Euro Summit. We had worked out the principles of what might need to be accomplished. And then there were heavy debates at the, at the Euro Summit, of course, which went on, if I remember correctly, until five in the morning. Yeah. And in the end, uh, that's how it all started. And, and one of the, I mean, that is one of the biggest decisions to pull sovereignty we've seen probably since since the creation of the single currency. Absolutely, absolutely. And it shows that uh, you can have political agreements if they are well prepared and you don't need uh, hundreds of pages uh, of preparatory documentation gone through by the experts, which may, in some instances, may actually inhibit progress and not further progress. So... Given that Greece is um, now about to exit its third and everyone expects final bailout program, what what is the state of Greece now? How much has Greece prepared as a result of the economic adjustment programs it had as a condition of its bailouts? And how do you see Greece's sustainability going forward? Well, it's 2018. I would say that in 2015, Greece was flat on their back. And 15 was very difficult. 16 was difficult. 17 was better and 18 is good. 
So I would say Greece, they're now on their knees, and I'm, I'm very confident that they will be able to get back on their feet and walk alone. And I've repeatedly been asked, why do you not intervene in the education system, the judicial system, this, that, and the other? And the purpose of such programs is to uh, alleviate those short-term problems and those factors uh, which led to the reversal of capital flows in the first instance. Mm. They're not there to change a society. That's for the Greek people or the Irish people, the Spanish people, the Portuguese people, the Korean people to do for themselves and by themselves. And uh, otherwise, uh, this would be catastrophic for democracy. So you come in, you try and fix the short-term problems, and the long-term issues are uh, for the country themselves uh, to deal with. So Greece can have a great future. They uh, have many talents. Uh, They are geographically well-situated to profit from the coming uh, decades. And if they will actually manage to do so depends on, of course, primarily on politics. Will the Greek people get uh, an administrative system and administration that is fast and predictable? Uh, Will there be a judicial system which is the same? Is the educational system geared to the challenges of the 21st century or not? All of this is possible, as it is possible in many of our societies. Will Greece become the Luxembourg of southeastern Europe? Obviously not. But there are alternative development paths, and I am hopeful that Greek politics will choose and enable uh, the more benign uh, development paths. And for that, the state has to become less clientelistic uh, than it is. I would like to believe that it has become less clientelistic than it was before the crisis, which essentially was one of the reasons why it actually got into the crisis. You'd like to be, but do you really see that at the moment? I'm never certain of, hardly ever certain of anything except uh, my preference for powder snow. (laughs) Okay, To, to conclude, one abstract question and one quite visual one. The abstract one, are there intrinsic flaws in the construction of the euro area and, and, and the euro? In retrospect, in 2008-2010, we should have been more vocal on uh, the problems posed by the absence uh, of a banking union of in- highly integrated financial markets with the regulatory and supervisory framework that is required. I would say now we are there uh, where we should be. There are still quite a number of nice-to-haves, but there is not a single need-to-have missing at this this stage. And a visual one. What's your abiding image of these crisis years? Crisis meetings. Thinking back, indeed, in 10 years' time, there must be one or two images that are really imprinted on your mind from that period. Keep cool, have another summit.
And that's the end of this week's show. Let us know what you think. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. Please rank and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps other people find out about us. Jim and Alex are both on Twitter. You can find Jim at Jim Brunston and Alex is at Alex E. Barker. Thanks again to Jim and Alex and to Thomas Wieser. We'll see you here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat.